Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Oren Etzioni. Oren was the founding CEO of the Allen Institute for AI, or AI2, and led the organization until 2022. Oren has founded several companies, including Faircast, which sold to Microsoft in 2008, and Decide, which sold to eBay in 2013. He's also a partner at Majorna Ventures and a professor emeritus at the University of Washington. And he's written over 200 technical papers and has been cited over 42,000 times, which is a lot. Oren, welcome to World of DAS. Oren, thank you. This might be confusing for the audience as we have two Orens here, which is probably not common on a podcast. I don't know if it's ever happened before. <laughs> well, we make news on World of Death, so it's a good thing. Now, you've wrote this really great article in 2020 called How to Know If Artificial Intelligence is About to Destroy Civilization, where you laid out what you saw as canaries in the coal mine for the emergence of artificial general intelligence. Can you break down what those canaries are and how far we are at reaching them? Let's start with the fact that we're all aware with chat GPT and so on, how quickly AI is progressing over the last few years. And of course, since I wrote the article, I want to make sure that we distinguish between AI technology, cool things like chat GPT, other kinds of technologies that are moving into self-driving, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get more into it, but that's AI technology. And then there's foundational AI research where we ask, what does it take to build human-level intelligence, AGI, artificial general intelligence. And those are quite different things. I don't think anybody, even the folks at OpenAI, believe that ChatGPT is the basis for AGI. They say it's quite limited. So if that's the case, we have a lot of things to think about. Impact of AI on jobs, on privacy, positive impacts, how does it help us find better vaccines? Again, we can get into a lot of details there. But I argued that there's one thing that we shouldn't worry too much about, and unfortunately, a lot of people are, and that's AI taking over the world, this existential doom of we're going to wake up one day. We're not even living in the Terminator, right? Because the Terminator was just one robot who was sent back in time. We're talking about something like transcendence, when suddenly AI is everywhere, it controls everything, and maybe it'll keep us as pets. That, I think, is rather overblown. And why do you think that is overblown? There's a lot of very smart people have said this is one of the more important threats that we should be thinking about. Well, I think conceptually, it is an important thing. And you have people like the late Stephen Hawking, who made that point. But this is a guy who's used to thinking about the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang. And now he's talking about this. And it's like, well, if I'm off by a thousand years, that's a rounding error. The question is, I'm an empiricist. I'm a data-driven empirical computer scientist. And I ask, what is the data that would suggest to us that something like that is imminent coming in the next 10 to 20 years? Prognosticating beyond 20 years is really something for philosophers and scientific writers. So when we get to the data, this was my point, we see that there is 
no data that supports that conclusion. And we can talk about specifics, but that's my contention. So then I said, okay, so, but what if I'm asleep at the wheel, right? I worry about other stuff like making my mortgage payments and all of a sudden AI creeps up on us and it can improve suddenly. So that's why I defined this idea of canaries in the coal mine. These are things that alert miners, right? These birds that suddenly oxygen is low. So what are the canaries in the coal mine? I said, if we have AI systems, that can achieve certain capabilities way beyond what we have today, including, by the way, ChatGPT and GPT-4, then we should start thinking about this a lot more concretely and seriously. Not a matter of philosophy, but a matter of policy. What do we do about it over the coming decade? How would a layman know that we've reached some of these canaries? Well, a huge one has to do with AI formulating its own problems. So if you think about... GPT, which I keep referring to because everybody is these days. Everyone's used it. Framing the conversation. You're still the one asking the questions. Pablo Picasso had a great line. He said, computers are useless. They just answer questions. Now, I wouldn't say that computers are useless, far from it. But the fact remains that we are the ones who pose the questions. We are the ones who define the goals. We are the ones who formulate the problem. In some sense, the AI system only does the last mile of making some of these massive calculations. So even with GPT, who built GPT? Who set up the objective function for it? Who did all the careful, judicious choices that led us to have this marvelous technology? People. If AI is so great, if we are so close to AGI, why didn't AI build ChatGPT? Almost like it's helping you get to where you already know where you want to go just like a GPS system would help me get to where I want to go better. Sure. But to be clear, it's a little bit more than that. I think that's a great metaphor to sharpen one point. With a GPS, you know where you want to go and you specify a particular destination. Sometimes I don't know where I want to go. I wanted to discover something. But I still say abstractly, it's kind of like a GPS system that can also say, hey, take me to a great sushi restaurant in downtown San Francisco and make sure there's availability. We don't have an AI system yet that does that. But that's an example, right? So it's not just, I know exactly where to go. Just take me there in the most optimal way. You can give it more abstract goals. But you're the one who decides you feel like sushi. And who built that system in the first place? That was one of your colleagues or some company. What do you think these classic metrics for evaluating AI systems, like the Turing test, et cetera, do we need a new metric like the Turing test to help us guide us in the future? The Turing test is really a fascinating topic and something that's really changed over the last few months. So again, let me give a quick history lesson just to catch people up. The Turing test was defined by famous computer scientist Alan Turing in the 50s as a very smart idea of how do we tell when we've achieved intelligence when we're conversing over some medium like the internet or text messages with somebody, and we can't tell whether that's a person or, of course, I know you know this word, but in the university, I was a professor for many years. We like to say, we're going to start with a little review. Yeah, so that's great. Is, if you can't tell if it's a person or a machine, then that machine has passed the Turing test. It can imitate a person. Up until quite recently, it was quite easy to tell, certainly for any expert, that you were talking to a person or whether you're talking to a machine. That is no longer the case. So I've spent way too much time conversing, if you will, with ChatGPT, probing it, 
trying to get it to change its mind on topics, trying to get it to explain its reasoning. And of course, you know, there's some telltale signs. It's got this officious tone, but those are all stylistic things that are easy to fix. The fact of the matter is, for most people, it passes the Turing test. Correct. Do we need a new thing or is it past its prime? We definitely need a new thing. And by the way, that's not a simple thing because at AI2, one of our things was, okay, let's use standardized tests as our metrics. There are a lot of challenges that AI solved, including playing chess at world champion level, playing Go, all that good stuff. And we said, okay, but how about passing a test like the Regents test in biology, like an AP exam, all those things. And for a while, AI really struggled with those because they required a lot of background knowledge, common sense, understanding of the question. Well, that's gone by the wayside. In fact, the history of AI is that when we set up goals and benchmarks, whether it's playing poker, playing diplomacy, all kinds of things, we keep meeting those for specific tasks. And so now we've surpassed the Turing test. We need a new test or several tests. And it is not at all obvious what that should be. If you put a gun to my head and you said, hey, Oren, you got to come up with a test right now, I'd say self-driving. You would not want ChatGPT or even the vaunted GPT-4 that we're all waiting for. And I dare say, not even GPT-5. I would not want it to drive my car. Because once in a while, other than it actually doesn't know, right? You can't learn that from text or even from code on GitHub. Every once in a while, it'll crash. Maybe not today, but let's say in a very short amount of time, AI probably could get a perfect score, a very good score on the bar exam which is seen to be one of the harder, more difficult standardized tests. If that could happen, what are we really testing humans anymore in? Why do we even give some of these tests to humans if they could just give it to a machine instead? Or, and I think you're bringing up two really important points. The first one, which I think is really helpful takeaway for the listeners, and that is that there's a paradox here. The things that are hard for humans like playing Go, playing master yeah. level Go, are actually turns out to be easy for machines. Some of the things that are easy for humans turn out to be quite hard for machines. The example is common sense. We have a project to endow machines with common sense. Generally, they don't. It's extremely hard. So that's one point. So it's not surprising that things that we find hard, the machine could actually do incredibly well on today. Your second point, what are we doing here? What should the test be? is a really important one too, because we do need to rethink our educational system, our testing system, and those discussions are going on right now, because are we testing for the right things? Knowing all this stuff, is that what makes a good lawyer when GPT or a system like it can easily retrieve it for you? Or is it asking the right questions? We used to have open book exams. Maybe we should have open GPT exams. You can use GPT by design. And the person who uses it better to construct a stronger legal case, that's the person who's the better attorney. Yeah, that would be really interesting because most of what we've been teaching and testing for over the last hundred years has been systems thinking, which is essentially what the SAT test really tests for. And that has been extremely predictive of whether someone will be successful, et cetera, is how good of a systems thinker they are. But it does seem like the thing that 
AI and computers are most good at is systems thinking. And so I'm not sure that we should be focusing everybody on systems thinking when potentially they could be doing other types of things. Imagination. Imagination, exactly. Judgment. All soft skills, they're hard to test for. But those are the things that are going to be most prized. Working well with others. All these things that are going to be most prized when computers can do a bunch of basics for us. No, it is hard to predict, though, because if you had asked me five years ago, even where I think a young person should focus on that would be a good anti-AI strategy, I would have said art. But then recently, we've seen this like beautiful generative art that has come out. I think it is hard to make a prediction as to how people should focus their time. I do think it's hard to make a prediction about professions, but it's not hard to give sound advice. Like, you know, the line, you're not going to be replaced by a machine, but you might be replaced by somebody who knows how to use the machine better. Who are the artists that are going to thrive in this day and age? Maybe the ones who know how to use these new media to great effect. So that creative background is probably still incredibly important. And if they could use the tools to help them, that's really interesting. What could really help accelerate AI? Is it new types of data that will help us there? Is it access to more compute? Is it the fundamental research that we need? What do we need to really get AI to take the next level? Well, that's a topic of a lot of debate right now because the picture has changed. What we've seen typically with data sets is some kind of declining marginal utility, right? You have 50% more data, but you only get 20% more benefit. And then you have more data and you only get 10% more benefit, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, we've seen such great improvements, qualitative and quantitative, from feeding more data into these models, that's kind of changed the equation. So certainly, it's somewhat linear if you look at data in a logarithmic curve. It does seem it's fairly linear into how the data has improved these models. Sure, we're linear in a logarithmic curve is exponential. That's right. In another way. So one way or another, it's quite explosive. So some people, and they're called scaling maximalists, have gotten to the point of saying just more data, more compute, mission accomplished. I think, as some other people do, that there's still very important limitations to the capabilities of these systems. Again, tremendous technologies. We're going to find great uses for them, but it's not just about more data and more compute. And of course, an obvious one has to do with cost. So these are really expensive and the expense per answer limits the applicability of this. So if we could figure out how to do the training more efficiently, how to do the runtime behavior, what's called inference, more efficiently. And we are. I think that the costs, the unit economics are going to be dropping sharply. Obviously, there's these fixed costs for like a chat GPT. The variable costs are also relatively high. Do we have a sense of, for the average question, how much it costs to answer that? I have to look up. There are definitely estimates. The number that comes into my head is for something like, I don't know, was 20 cents an estimate that oh, I saw. So that's really high. Yeah, that is really high. I think that's probably too high. But in a sense, it doesn't matter because that's also moving quickly. Let's yep. say it was 20 cents a little while ago. It'll be two cents in the future. Yeah. So the question is, what's the relative fixed point of that when it gets harder to drive the cost down? Right now, everybody's focusing on time to market. And as a result, 
that's less of an issue. But as people use it more, then driving the cost down will become a huge priority as well. Now, Reid Hoffman has said that we need to think about training AI to optimize for cooperation rather than just training it on more adversarial games and environments like Go and poker. How do you think about that? I love that point. I think it's a brilliant point. And actually, as a reaction to AlphaGo, right, the program that beat the world champion in Go, we decided to build a program that plays Pictionary. This is several years ago. It's still, I think, up and running. It's called the Iconary. So people want to play with it. It's fun. The idea was that Pictionary is a cooperative game. It involves language and symbols and communication. You have to help your partner guess it appropriately. You may even have to sense of who your partner is. Exactly. Because you may draw it in that way. The reason for studying it is not because Pictionary is such an important problem for humanity, but because we're interested in exploring exactly this point about cooperation. So I think that is a very important direction. And if you think for a second about ChatGPT, the fact that it's been tuned on people's feedback, well, that tuning is tuning it to cooperate better because people are saying, here, this is what works for me, not in some abstract mathematical sense, but here's how you can have a better conversation with humans. You're also a very big proponent of the ability to crawl the web. There's a lot of amazing data on the web, and the more we crawl, the more we can mine it, the better we can have access to the world's data. And you've been particularly interested in some of these cases where LinkedIn sued Q over web scraping. How do you think we should build a framework for regulating the ability to crawl? This is a complex topic, obviously, but I would say here are a few fundamental observations. First of all, crawling is generally good for consumers. If we didn't have crawling, we wouldn't have Google, we wouldn't have ChatGPT, et cetera, et cetera. So clearly in broad strokes, it's good. It's often the case that proprietary owners of data have an issue with it. And one does need to strike a balance because, of course, if they've worked hard to collect that data, to curate that data, they need appropriate incentives in place too. So I think that there is definitely a balance here. And one does need to think about compensation schemes. How does the owner of the data get appropriately compensated for its use? I mean, how is that even possible with a chat GPT? We don't even know necessarily where each thing came from, and it could be derivatives of derivatives of derivatives. So is it even possible to build a competition model? We need to first start with the observation that you should be able to have, right, back in the day, there was a robots.txt file. It still exists. Robots shouldn't come. So it's kind of a tricky thing because Google made it as they said, hey, sure, if you put your robots txt will respect that, but then you also won't be listed on Google. So they use their market position to strong arm people to make their content available. But you should be able to specify, I don't want to be crawled, or you can say, I want to be crawled, but I don't want this to be used for training. So I think that is an important distinction to make. And secondly, I think we also need to distinguish when you do the crawling, are you putting the source that you crawled out of business? So if you think of Quora or Getty Images, which had a lawsuit filed. It's a real problem for them what's happening because soon you won't need those sources, as you said. And in that case, I think they ought to be compensated. Now, 
the mechanics of how you do that is complicated, but I think it's doable. But we first need to decide. We're far from having made that policy and legal and regulatory decision that the sources of training data for AI under certain circumstances ought to be compensated. One of the things, wait, if you do crawl someone's site, you do have to respect it as well. You don't want your crawl to be, to take them a lot of their compute resources. So you might want to crawl it when they don't have a lot of other people visiting, like maybe in the wee hours of the night. And you want to crawl it in a very respectful way where you're not doing maybe adversarial attacks on them to crawl. There's some sort of high level of respect that you need to have if you're crawling someone's page as well. Certainly. In those things, again, Google and web crawlers have actually worked through those issues. So people have restrictions, not just crawl or do not crawl, but don't crawl this section of my site, don't crawl certain errors, limit your rate, like you said, to sending me a request every so often, et cetera, et cetera. It's all doable. But the thing that's really tricky here is, let's say I'm an artist and I have my paintings online and this technology is so good at looking at a hundred of my paintings and now it can imitate my style. Totally. It can use the pictures faster, cheaper, and maybe even more creatively. And the program can then mix my style with Van Gogh's, which has never been done before. It's incredibly cool. What does that do to me? So yeah, you crawled my site respectfully. You did it at two in the morning. You only did it once because it's not like ages that much. But now my arts career, my painting career is over. There's some real issues here. I just think it's going to be incredibly hard. I mean, you mentioned like Quora and Stack Overflow. I think it's very hard to build the compensation models. I think if it's directly based on like you, the artist, and we're going to make something that is in your style, I think it's a lot easier to come up with a model. We're going to give you a song in the style of Taylor Swift or something. It's a little bit easier to figure out how to compensate the artist. But if it's just general questions and stuff, I think it's going to be a lot harder. I don't even know if we'll know what the weight is of what came to what answer those things. And even if we do know, my guess is the weights are quite small. All this data from these five sites contributed 0.1% to the answer or something. That's exactly right. Both statements are true. Because it's that data, let's say all the questions, of course, are grist for a mill. It's very hard to tell where exactly did the seeds come from when I had a loaf of bread. It all got mixed up. And secondly, even if you could tell, you'd find, gosh, did I really need? You can imagine doing kind of a controlled experiment. Okay, run your thing without Quora. How much worse is it? And the answer is, well, in some small cases, it'll be a lot worse. But most of the time, similar answers are somewhere else. Interesting. Have you changed your own personal habits since ChatGPT have come out? Are you using it more for technical questions? Are you using it more for other types of things? How have you just in your everyday life changed? I wouldn't say that I personally am actively using it as a productivity tool. It's changed my life because I'm endlessly playing with it, thinking about it, conversing with people about uses of it. And I'm constantly learning about new unanticipated uses. So sure, we all think, okay, it's going to help our writing. We all know it might have a huge impact on search. But recently I saw somebody that was advocating, if you want to practice, let's say you want to practice a skill, like learn to be a better negotiator, and you need some role-playing partner. Here's a great role-playing partner, ChatGPT, just 
in your prompts, set up a conversation, and then in, with endless patience at two o'clock in the morning, engage with you. Another wonderful example is there's a company that spun out of our incubator called Udly, which is an automated speech coach. It's free, it's available anytime, and it gives you feedback on the mechanics of your speech and oh, interesting. a lot of filler words. Yeah, it's very, very cool. I might feel so too self-conscious, actually, to put my speech in there. Well, the interesting thing is that, first of all, of course, it's all private. It's really good for people who are self-conscious doing it in front of an audience. They say, hey, I would prefer a machine to look at this and me to look back than getting some of my friends. You know, different people are different. But here's the twist. Now, it doesn't just help you with the mechanics. It also helps you be more eloquent because it's using... Chat GPT type of technology to paraphrase. You take a section of your speech and you say, how can I make this more concise? I need to trim my speech. Or you say, how can I make this funnier? All these types of things. So how do I make this more accessible for people who tend to be too technical? That's really interesting. So you could even see how these things could be put inside of like a Grammarly or these other types of products to help you write better or speak better, et cetera. That's really, really cool. All that is coming. Write better, speak better, look better. Lenza is another wild one, which incredible. I have nothing to do with, but I had to try. You upload some pictures and it makes you look good. Who doesn't want to look good? It's really cool. You ran AI2, which is a big research institution. How is that different from running a business? Wow, that's such a great question. I've spent a lot of time reflecting on that. I would say there are several key differences and, of course, lots of smaller ones. The first one is a difference of mission. Our mission from 2014 was AI for the common good. And in fact, when OpenAI was launched, it had uh, not this similar mission statement back in 2015. But over time, of course, that's changed. It's become more focused on a very high cost enterprise and they needed to raise billions of dollars and provide a return to investors and so on. So I don't begrudge them their thing, but I would say the first difference is mission. A second difference, which flows from that is what motivates people. If you join a startup, you have a chance of outsized material success. It can become a huge enterprise. If you join Google, you can rise through the ranks and all that. If you join a nonprofit research organization, you're not going to be somebody who runs a 10,000-person team that runs a billion-dollar P&L line. So you have a different motivation. Usually you do it for the mission. The same researchers who I'm sure you compete with to get at AI2, also maybe Google and OpenAI and Microsoft and Many other places might compete, and even more traditional academic institutions will also compete for those same people. Is that right? That is absolutely right. So one of the biggest challenges in building AI2, because we started, we had zero people. Now we have more than 250 in the $100 million a year budget. So as we've grown, the biggest challenge, usually challenges fundraising, because this is the brainchild of the late Paul Allen and supported by his largesse and now by his estate. Money was not the issue. It was much more the issue of how do you find talented, mission-driven people, given, as you say, they have a bunch of really good options. They could be at university and have tremendous freedom. They could be at a corporate research lab, have access to tremendous resources. That was one of the biggest challenges that I faced. 
once you have these people in the organization, is there just a way that you think about like running it differently? Is it a company may have more OKRs or other types of things? And is it more run more similar to an academic institution? Or is it, hey, we do have these top-down goals and we're going to task you and push you into those to fulfill those things? We sit partway between a more corporate entity and an academic department. And so we definitely have tremendous freedom, a lot of bottom-up type of activity. But at the same time, because we are focused on our mission, we do have goals, which you typically do not have. I mean, you have certain goals, but we have team goals, annual goals, quarterly goals, things that you typically would not see in a university. So I like to say about AI2 is that we are a combination of a university department and a startup. The university department brings the informality, the collegiality, all those good things, but the startup brings metric-focused goals and also accountability. We hold each other accountable to, it's not like, oh, you know, this is kind of fun, curiosity-driven research, maybe I'll write a paper on that. In fact, we don't measure ourselves. A lot of places, and there's currently an interesting debate going online, who's more productive in paper output? Microsoft, Stanford, Google, right? All these things. And to me, this is rather silly. It's kind of like saying, who's a better engineer? The one who writes more lines of code or who's a better spouse? The one that says more words to you. (laughs) That's just not the right better. There's a minimum. If you don't publish at all, or if your spouse never speaks to you at all, that's a problem. But once you're above the minimum, that's just not the right way to think about what's going on. So we didn't maximize paper output, we really focused on maximizing positive impact on the world. That makes a lot of sense. At Safegraph, we spent a lot of time thinking about data capabilities in general. And what will it mean for companies, particularly those outside of tech or outside of specific orgs that develop AI to have strong AI capabilities? I'm a huge fan of Safegraph. I don't get paid to say that. So this is a genuine point of view. Thank you. And it's because I think that focusing on data and focusing on data quality is just incredibly important to achieve the capabilities that we want. And I think now more and more people are realizing it when they, for example, see that ChatGPT isn't just about the amount of data. Well, first of all, it's about the data, the amount of it and the quality of it. Both are extremely important. And so companies that years ago focused on the tools, on the curation, on the collection and availability of data were visionary. I think they will be amply rewarded in the marketplace. And I come at this from the point of view of an AI person. And it's a simple adage, garbage in, garbage out. We need high quality data. And these AI systems, as you know, are particularly sensitive to it, A, because they don't have common sense, and B, because they need so much of it. Our kids, it's amazing. They hear a word once in context, and they learn it, and they can remember it, they can reuse it. Chat GPT, not so. It needs a lot of data to understand, quote-unquote, something. Now, AI2 spun out a bunch of really interesting companies How do you think that should be with these research institutions? How should they be thinking about commercializing certain things, what to commercialize, what not to? Because it's like, you're not really an incubator of companies, but then you kind of are an incubator of companies as well. I am very proud of the fact that over the last few years, we've spun out more than 20 companies 
Yuli that I mentioned is one of them. Another one called Exnor was acquired by Apple for more than reported $200 million and has had a huge impact inside Apple, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a way to have a positive impact, right? It's part of the eye for the common good. It's a way to create jobs and all that. The total market cap, if you add up the financing rounds and the acquisitions and so on, is at this point upwards of $800 million. So I really feel it's like amazing. that is one of the things that we've done over a relatively short time. To answer your question, like how does this fit with a nonprofit research institute? I say it fits great. So one of the reasons that Paul Allen recruited me, the late Paul Allen, to this job is because I had a track record of spinning companies out of universities. And he didn't want to just create another university department. He, as an entrepreneur himself, a much greater entrepreneur than me, wanted to see that kind of activity. And it's very simple. You do things in a research context, but you make it easy for people to then take it in a commercial direction when appropriate. And of course, if you think of some of our greatest companies like Google, Yahoo back in the day. They all kind of spun out in a way. Very much right, the, the origin of the research. We actually take this a step further. And this also goes back to your point of, gosh, what's the difference between a corporate research lab and a place like AI2? AI2 is very open. In some ways, we're more open than a university because we worry less about IP. Universities have somehow gotten very jealous of their intellectual property. I don't think that's a good decision. We're very open. We have collaborators. We have students and interns coming in. Code can transfer. We take the default that everything is open. Everything's going to be open source and it's fine. When there's something that we see has commercial capability and we see that we have entrepreneurs that want to take it further, then we adopt a different stance. Then we would shift it into the incubator and so on. So you can exist effectively like university in a very open fashion and only move into this more commercial mode, more proprietary mode when necessary. And I think that's actually a win-win. I think that creates a better research environment. And I think that better research can then lead to very strong outcomes. It's very rare that, gosh, that paper that you wrote, oh my God, you shouldn't have published that. And Google, right, started from the PageRank algorithm, which was published. But there's so much more to Google, even back in the day, not now, but even two years later than that paper, somebody reading the paper did not have access to the crown jewels. A couple of personal questions. Your father is a renowned sociologist and ethicist. How has his work influenced your career? My father has been really influential in my career in at least two ways. One is he is a huge champion of what he calls and other people call being a public intellectual. So not sitting in the ivory tower and dealing with very abstruse questions, but asking the question, how does the work I do impact society. And getting in the arena. Exactly. And having those conversations with lawmakers, writing more popular pieces. So he used to write op-eds for the New York Times. I've had that privilege. He's testified before Congress. I have. He's done more of that. He's in his 90s, but I certainly learned a lot from him. The second and perhaps even more important thing that I learned from him is we as engineers love to ask the detailed minutia questions. Okay, what open source license should I use here? And what revision policy? And those are essential. Otherwise, you can't build stuff. But he always encouraged me to ask the big questions. What does this mean? What is the most fundamental question 
to think about in this context, even if it's a technical question. And so I've always kept my eye on the prize, if you will, on asking the most fundamental questions. And I think that's been very productive for me. Okay, last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Let me be very contrarian here for fun. All right, let's do it. I think there's a mindset that I see more and more around young people. Don't work too hard. Have a balanced existence. Take care of yourself. And of course, that's true. I'm not saying, oh, don't take care of yourself. Forget exercise. Just work 20 hours a day. But I'm saying that you should optimize that function of having balance in your life and all that over a longer period of time. So there are periods where you ought to be working your butt off. And there are projects where it makes sense to say, okay, for a while here, maybe I won't be so balanced. Yeah, I'll sacrifice my health or something like that because I'm so interested in this particular thing. Not to an extreme that's irreversible, but I'm just saying you should have those things, but over a broader scale. And there are times where dedicating yourself to a mission, if it's worthwhile, is one of the greatest things you can do. So I would say get into adventures. It also might actually be good for your long-term health to feel like you're part of a bigger thing than yourself. Especially for your long-term psychological health. Exactly. I would just say to people, question the conventional wisdom and find your own path as opposed to just do what everybody else is doing. And it is amazing to me, the power of herd mentality, even in academia, even with a bunch of smart people in the world of technology, there's too much herd mentality. So think for yourself, dedicate yourself to something important, and then take a break, take a sabbatical. One thing I think is even when people have something that they want to optimize for, let's say it's happiness or health, they sometimes do the opposite of their long-term happiness or long-term health. Unintended consequences are huge. And I love to collect examples of when we do something and we think it has that effect and it has the opposite effect. So very true. All right. This has been great. Thank you, Oren Etzioni, for joining us on World of DAS. I follow you at Etzioni on Twitter. I encourage our listeners to engage with you there. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Oren Hoffman. It's been a real pleasure. And Oren to Oren, keep up the great work. We're going to do more Orens on World of Dads. This is great. Thank you. All right. Hey, this is fun. Thanks, Oren. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.